So, Donald Trump. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Not again this week. This is going to be a Trump-free, triumphal entry Sunday, and the people of God said, Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please take them out, turn to the Gospel of Mark, the 14th chapter. And when you found your place there, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. Now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, once again, we pray, come to you in need, asking, and want. And what we want, Lord, is for your spirit to speak your truth to us through your word this morning and transform us. So we open ourselves now to your word, the truth of it to do in us what you will for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. This morning we continue reading the Gospel of Mark about the week that changed the world. In the last few weeks we've looked at Sunday, at Monday. Last week we looked at Tuesday of the week that changed the world. This week on Wednesday and Thursday, we'll consider what happened on Thursday of that week as we celebrate the Seder. And on Friday, we'll come back here and and celebrate what happened on that day at our Good Friday service. So this morning, Wednesday is left to us. Wednesday, the week that changed the world. As the Lord looked upon his servant, Mark, diligently writing at his desk, Why did the Lord inspire Mark to to write what he wrote about this Wednesday? Why did the Spirit of God inspire Mark to arrange this material as he did? You know, Mark had the distinction of working with all the big names, the headliners in early church history. He traveled with the famous Barnabas and Paul on their first ever mission trip. Mark was along. 
with them. After he left Barnabas and Paul, he had the privilege of serving as the assistant to the mighty apostle Peter. We can only imagine what Mark heard from those great men. Eusebius, a 3rd and 4th century Roman historian. Don't let your eyes roll back in your head. (laughs) He's a historian and a Bible scholar. He he writes this, 3rd and 4th century A.D. That Peter, a noble general of God, clad in divine armor, brought the costly merchandise, the gospel of light itself, the word that saves souls, the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven to Rome. And so great a light of religion shone upon the minds of the hearers of Peter that they were not satisfied with a single hearing or with the unwritten teaching of the divine proclamation. But with all kinds of entreaties urged Mark, seeing that he was a follower of Peter, to leave them in writing a record of the teaching transmitted to them orally. Nor did they cease until they had prevailed upon the man. And so they became responsible for the scripture that is called the gospel according to Mark. And they say that the apostle, Peter, knowing by the revelation of the Spirit to him what had been done, rejoiced because of their zeal and ratified the scripture for study in the churches. Going back even further, a man named Papias, church father, born between 50 and 60 A.D. He was a disciple of John the Apostle. This is what he said. When Mark became Peter's interpreter, he wrote down accurately, although not in order, whatever he remembered of what was said or done by the Lord. He followed Peter, who used to to frame his teaching to meet the need of his hearers, but not composing, as it were, an orderly account of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark made no mistake in thus writing down certain things as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave careful attention, namely to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to falsify nothing. That's going way back in history to verify the gospel of Mark and all that he wrote. We learn that Peter, in his preaching and teaching, framed the stories that he told about Jesus to meet the needs of those to whom he was preaching and teaching. Who were they? They were the Romans. And so it's no surprise to us that the Spirit of God inspired Mark to write the shortest gospel, fast-paced story, full of energy, full of action, perfectly suited for those who sought and were successful in conquering most of the known world. It's no surprise that the Spirit of God inspires Mark to present Jesus as a conquering king. Diseases are no match for Jesus. He heals them. Demons are no match for Jesus. He casts them out. Death is no match for Jesus. He brings people back to life. His dominion extends even over nature, according to Mark. The furious winds and waves are still and quiet when Jesus speaks to them. And and the disciples say, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Yes, God inspired a gospel that would captivate the imagination of the Romans in their ongoing quest for more power and more glory. But Mark's story isn't just to interest the Romans. It isn't just to inform them. Mark writes his story to change them. Is that not what Peter 
the great apostle, sought. Peter's very first sermon on the day of Pentecost. What did he say? Be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, the Romans didn't need just information. They needed transformation. They needed their lives to be turned around. You and I need transformation, don't we? We need our lives to be turned around. The Word of God does not exist just to inform you. The Word of God exists to transform you and me. I'll say that again. The Word of God doesn't exist just to inform you, well-educated Presbyterians. The Word of God exists to transform you and me. And so it must, because it's the story of Jesus. A story meant not to inform us only, but to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so that's why Mark wrote his story of Jesus. Whenever you and I pick up a novel to read or a short story, we're placing our hearts, we're placing our minds in the hands of the author. Here I am. Do with me what you will with your story. Stories may frighten us. The stories may make us laugh. The stories may make us rethink our world. The stories may change us. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're placing our hands, our lives, in Mark's hands as he tells his holy inspired story of Jesus. Now listen, after you hear the story, you're going to be responsible for what you hear. You can no longer be you. You have to be someone different. As we've already heard, Peter would frame his teaching and his preaching to meet the needs of the hearers. And so it is what Mark does with his story of what happened on Wednesday of the week that changed the world. Mark's telling the story. But then he inserts, by way of flashback, an event that happened not on Wednesday, but but happened on the Saturday before the Sunday of the week that changed the world. And it's this episode about Jesus being anointed with oil. Why did Peter teach the story in this way? Why did Mark write it down in this way? Well, the secret things belong to God, don't they? But we can make these observations. Mark places in this story, side by side, those who seek to destroy Jesus, those who betray Jesus, right alongside those who love and follow the Lord. Here they are, side by side in this story. You, reader of this story, with which one will you identify? One who betrays, seeks to destroy Jesus, or one who loves and follows him? That's the decision for which you're responsible. But... Before anyone makes that decision, Mark has some compelling information to share with us about who God is, namely that he is the sovereign God over all things. See, we deceive ourselves. I'm telling you, we deceive ourselves if we continue to believe this business that we are in charge of our own lives, that we are masters of our own destinies, sort of like men 
deceiving themselves into believing that they are actually the head of their home. Now, they may call themselves the head of their home, but as my wife reminds me regularly, women are the neck that turns the head whichever way she wants it to go. (laughs) The men aren't laughing. But that's the case. We delude ourselves with self-importance. And so whenever I think about this, the sovereignty of God, I think of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king of the earth sets the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us." He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, "As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, God does sit in heaven. God does rule over all. And is absolutely God's prerogative to laugh at those who plot or set themselves against God. And that's what these religious leaders are doing in the story that Mark tells us. They're using all their position and all the power that goes with that to plot against God and his anointed one. But look, this is the funny part, the laughable part. For all their plotting, these men could not even pull off Holy Week. They, left to themselves, would have bungled it. They might not have gotten Jesus at all. So let's limit ourselves just to their ineptness of this week that changed the world. And we'll leave out all the other stuff they did before that. On Monday, the day that Jesus cleared the temple, Mark tells us that the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. On Tuesday, Jesus bested them when they could not answer his question because they feared the people. Later on Tuesday, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Poor, fearful religious leaders. Then we come to the passage before us this morning, verses 1 and 2 of Mark chapter 14. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. So, left to their own, these religious leaders, the Passover would have come and gone, and Jesus would still be alive. When Passover ended, Jesus would have left Jerusalem with the hundreds of thousands of other people who had filled the city to celebrate this most important Jewish feast. But God determined that Christ, our Passover, would be slain for us. God determined that Christ, the Passover lamb, would be slain according to his sovereign plan during Passover against the ineptitude of these plotting evil men. Now look in verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this. Of course, they were delighted to hear this. Look what just plopped in their lap. Something beyond what they could have imagined. 
What a blessing. These religious leaders must have thought it to be when the knock came on their door. Who could this be? Well, it's Judas. One of the 12 disciples of Jesus. What do you want, Jesus? Oh, I mean, what do you want, Judas? Oh, I want to betray Jesus to you. <gasps> what? Can you imagine the shock on their faces? Kind of like when you open your door and there's the publisher clearinghouse truck set in front of your house. Surprise! This is better than winning the lottery. But remember this. It's no surprise to Jesus. Judas is no surprise to Jesus. Early on in his ministry, Jesus reminded his disciples of this. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. See, God would not leave the carrying out of his plan of salvation conceived before the foundation of the world into the hands of these self-centered, self-seeking, glory-stealing bunglers. He is the sovereign God. His determination is to rescue us. His determination is to open a way for us to be with him forever and ever. And that time would be Passover. And so the Spirit inspired Mark to write this story in this way. So that as this identity decision is before us, you and I and all who read this gospel would be mindful of the sovereignty of God. We are not really in control. God is. And while initially that offends us, maybe continually that offends us, we kick against that truth. In the end, God's sovereignty is a really good thing. Because God is a really good, really gracious, really glorious, really great God. He really, really is. And you and I can overcome our fear of his sovereignty the more we look here in this word and get to know just how good God is. And so with only hours left, of his life on earth. On this Wednesday of the week that changed the world, it comes to this decision. Follow Christ or deny and betray him. Mark has presented the betrayers. Now between their stories, the religious leaders and Judas, Mark inserts this beautiful story of this bold, this one who boldly identifies with Jesus. And so we're going to stick to Mark's account here. And Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decided to leave this woman unnamed. And so though John identifies her, we're going to leave her unnamed this morning because Mark did. Now, according to the custom of the day in the Middle East, women were not allowed to join around the table with the men. They were allowed, however, to stand around the periphery of the room. Stand there ready to serve. Are you over that, ladies? I'm sorry. This was back then, but it's true. But from this vantage point, this woman can observe the scene and everything that's going around the table because she's not a participant. She's an observer. And what does she observe? Well, Simon is the host. And Mark adds the detail that Simon is known as a leper. Now, that may not be shocking to us, but it was shocking to this woman. It was shocking to everyone in the room that night. 
Where should Simon be? Simon should have been decaying. His body physically falling apart in a leper colony. Isolated. Totally cut off from family and friends and human touch. Simon should have been required to call out, Unclean! if anybody approached him, so that they too did not contract leprosy. But instead, where is Simon? He's hosting this dinner for Jesus, embracing his friends, eating, drinking, talking, laughing, maybe even praying with them. Why? Well, I think it's perfectly safe for us to assume that Jesus, the one who healed so many people stricken with leprosy, healed Simon as well. And so here's this woman. And she's looking on at this scene around the table. She's listening to their voices as they share this great fellowship around the table. And what she sees and what she hears as she watches Jesus overwhelms her. And so she takes this alabaster jar, which is most likely a family heirloom, and she breaks it and she pours out all of its contents, expensive perfume on Jesus. Mark adds the detail that the nard in that bottle was pure nard. wasn't mixed with anything else, not a little bit of water, not some other filler. It was pure nard. Very rare, very difficult to obtain. And this woman poured it all out on Jesus. Mark also adds the detail that the value of the perfume was equal to a whole year's salary. Think about what your salary is for one year. Imagine receiving all of it right here, right now, in this moment. Here's your salary for a year. You just dump it out. You don't buy anything with it. You don't do anything with it. You just dump it out. What is this woman saying with this act? Take my silver. Take my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Mark doesn't tell us whether this act was spontaneous or premeditated, just that it was lavish and extravagant, that it was holding nothing back. So surrounded by those who seek to destroy and betray Jesus is this one who loves him, not casually, not without cost or commitment, but who loves the Lord with everything. What would you have done If that jar had been in your hands, what would I have done? How lavish would we have been in in demonstrating our love for and commitment to Christ? Listen, it's a good question for us to ask ourselves in this room of those mostly who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of followers are we? What is our Commitment to the Lord. I believe that when we are overwhelmed with the person of Jesus, as this woman was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with all the good things that he has done, overwhelmed by the joy that he produces in the lives of so many people, we'll act as this woman acted. And maybe that's the key for us to be able to act in the way this woman did. Being overwhelmed by Jesus. How are we going to do that? Well, maybe you and I need to spend more time standing around the room, silently, watching 
listening, meditating, pondering, being quiet, not asking for anything, Lord, gimme, 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 not doing anything, just watching Jesus and listening to Him. And when we do that, I believe, I believe, I believe that we will be overwhelmed by what we see and what we hear. And I think then we will realize that we cannot give too much to the Lord, but in reality we don't have enough to give to Him. Maybe even then our very best would seem like not enough. Mark continues, it's hot in here. Are y'all hot? i got to take this off. Don't worry, you're not here too much longer, but I can't take that. Uh, So Mark continues to tell the story, and he records the response of those who who were watching this woman, probably in shock. They were indignant. They rebuked the woman harshly. They labeled what she did as a waste. And so let's get the picture. Here's the picture. Here's the story about those who follow Christ. And it's surrounded by the stories of those who betray and seek to, to, to destroy Christ. So here in the middle is this story. Now within this little story is this one woman. Here she is, as one who loves the Lord with all her heart, and she's surrounded by others who claim to follow Jesus, but they're aghast at what she does in her act of worshiping the Lord. So if you and I think it's easy To identify with the Lord and to love Him this way, you better think again. Because attacks will come not only from the outside, not only from those who unabashedly debase and deride and degrade and devalue Jesus, but also even among those who claim to follow Him. They'll look on at your religious fervor, passion, zeal, enthusiasm, excitement, exuberance, and extravagance. And they may not approve. You know, Presbyterians, we do things decently and in order. And Presbyterians may look aghast at the lack of restraint and the lack of dignity in this woman. Don't think it's easy to live outrageously for Jesus. To be fully committed to Him, it will not come at no cost. But... Here is Jesus, and what does he do? He defends this woman. Look in verse 6. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Then look in verse 8. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. See, Jesus accepts this act from this woman because he connects it with his own death. Dare I mention John Calvin? Wake up. This is what John Calvin says. By these words, Christ affirms what we have said, that the precious ointment was not valued by Jesus on account of its odor, but solely in reference to his burial. It was because he wished to testify by this symbol that his grave would yield a sweet odor as it breathed life and salvation through the whole world. Is that not beautiful? And so Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has, been done, what she has done will be told a memory of her. This gospel, what does Jesus mean? Is this event a picture of the gospel? 
someone, a sinner, overwhelmed by the person of Christ and who they see him to be. Someone, a sinner, bold enough to approach the Lord. Someone, a sinner, being accepted by the Lord and not rejected. Someone, a sinner, now being defended by Jesus, finding him to be their advocate and protector and friend. Is that not the gospel? This woman will be memorialized. Clearly, we're still talking about her today. Why? It's possible that this woman was the very first true believer in Christ. The disciples never got it. Even in the upper room on Thursday, Jesus has to ask them, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? Still you don't get it. But somehow this woman does. She's been watching and listening. And even if it's an incomplete way, she's put the pieces of the puzzle together to understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do and how he's going to do it. He's going to die for her so that she anoints his body with oil. When you understand these things about Jesus, you'll be lavish and extravagant because you understand that Jesus deserves the very best you have to offer him. Jesus deserves the very best you have to offer him. Jesus deserves the very best that you and I have to offer him. Take my silver, my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my will, make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thy own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. This woman understands that she must act now. She does not assume another opportunity at a future time. She knows this is the moment to give to Jesus. And now, people of God, this is our moment. Perhaps that's why Mark leaves this woman nameless so that we can find ourselves in her. That you and I might see ourselves there as people who hold nothing back from the Lord, who with abandon give to the Lord the very best that we have to offer, not caring what those around us think. Mark leaves the indignant, rebuking disciples nameless as well. Perhaps that's on purpose so that we can look for ourselves among those who follow Jesus, those who claim Him as our own and yet don't regard Him as worthy of giving Him everything we have to offer, but instead see that as a waste. This is our moment. This, right now, is our moment. Mark has provided the opportunity by telling this story the way he tells it. Side by side, side by side, those who deny the Lord seek to destroy Him, those who love and follow Him. And within that circle, what kind of follower will you be? A follower who gives Christ everything or those who hold back from Him? Which will be your identity? As I said, we cannot remain unchanged. You can now no longer claim ignorance. Well, I never knew. I never thought about that. Mark has now obligated every one of us 
in this room by telling us the truth about Jesus. Not just to inform us, but to transform us. And just as the mighty Apostle Peter called for repentance and a change of heart and a change of life, so this story through Mark calls for the same from you and me. Calls to submit to the sovereign God, to be a follower of Christ, not just any follower, but one who is extravagant, lavish, and unbridled in our love for Christ. Will this be who you are? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's my prayer now that you will continue doing what you've been doing over the course of of the past several weeks. That as we've considered this week that changed the world, that that week would continue to change us. Lord, I know you've brought about changes among us through the truth of your word joined with your spirit. You've stirred us up as you stirred the whole city of Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday when you made your triumphal entry there. The entire city was stirred. And Lord, I pray that you've stirred us and that you would continue to stir us. Father, help each of us realize that we must take on a new identity. We're either those who are for you or we are those who are against you. Those who believe in you or those who say you're not really who you claim to be. Lord, among your followers, those who number in the millions here in this country, there are those who follow you nominally and there are those Lord who give everything they have their first and their best to you Father I pray that in this congregation here at Redeemer that you would put it in our hearts because we're overwhelmed by you to give you our first and our best Father, show us that our leftovers are just that, sloppy leftovers. And that you deserve so much more and so much better from us because of who you are and what you've done for us and what you've enabled us by your Spirit to be. Father, we know, we believe that we can change the city of Charleston if we're people who love you and give to you in this way and share the good news of the gospel as we are the aroma of Christ in every place that you put us. We pray that this would be our reality now in Jesus' name. Amen.